This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. As the number one rated sales tax solution, trusted by more than 20,000 e-commerce professionals, TaxJar knows sales tax. To ensure accurate sales tax compliance amid the latest software taxability trends, visit taxjar.com forward slash saster to automate sales tax for your SaaS business. Up today, Gusto COO Lexi Reese. How many people have heard about Gusto before? Okay, keep your hands up if you use Gusto. Amazing, I worship you. For those who don't, shameless plug, we are the best people platform for businesses that care about their people, including Humphrey Slocum. Gusto now serves 100,000 small businesses. We have 1,000 employees across three locations, San Francisco, Denver, and New York. And everything in the past four years has grown by more than 10x. Our customers, our employees, our revenue, and with that growth, there is something that I think is really deeply reflective of what creates high-performing teams. And it may not be the thing that you're thinking of. I think the foundation of high-performance teams is that they share five things. They have impact. Everyone knows what they're there to create, and they're excited by that. There is personal meaning. People create a personal connection with that impact. There is structure and clarity. People know how work gets done. Clean orgs. I know what I need to do and I know how to do it. Dependability. I can depend on everyone equally to navigate their part of organization building. And the piece that most of today will be about is around the foundation, which is psychological safety and trust. Now, the, this work came out of some really good people analytics from Google that was performed over two years where a group that is referred to as Project Oxygen looked at teams, all functions across many organizations, looked at quantitative impact, what was their impact on key results, and also employee engagement, who was the highest engaged teams. They cross-referenced a bunch to come up with the teams that performed the highest were not the smartest people in the room. They were not the best positional players in their particular spot on the field. They were a team that had engendered this sense of trust. And for today, I'm gonna use the two words, psychological safety and trust, interchangeably. But there's actually an important component that people miss when they use them as synonyms. And that's that psychological safety is where people feel safe, welcome, and valued in equal measure. All people feel safe, welcome, and valued to express their opinion without fear of negative repercussion and to take risks and challenge the status quo. So I want to hold that in our head as we go through. Keep in your head while we're, while we're talking today one team. Could be your existing team, could be another team that had all five elements in spades. You would know this team because you were doing the best work of your life and so was everyone else. You felt in flow. People loved coming to work. You were creating products. You were driving results. You were creating profits. Real sustained value for the people that matter most, your customers, your employees, and your shareholders. 
and then think about another team. Maybe it's the team, the same team just at a different point in its life cycle, where that was not the case. It was just a bad vibe. And I'd submit that that team was lacking in trust and everything fell apart on top of that. Inattention to results, no clarity, I'm not gonna be able to depend on you. And now think about just in the past 12 months in your company, and in the next 12, how many teams will you be on? You'll be on your company team, your functional team, an agile cross-functional working group. And presumably a lot of people are coming, maybe people are going. Every time someone comes or goes, your team is in a new state of formation. It's a new team. So you're trying to form and get to know each other, and then there's definitely always a storming period where you're working through each other's differences and it's kind of rough. And then you normalize, and then you can possibly get to high performance. So if we know that trust is the necessary foundation for high performance, and if we're constantly in this state of trust, and state of flux, how do we actually cultivate that practically? Something to think about is, is trust earned or is it given? On day one, when someone comes to work with you, obviously a trust has been both earned and given. They believed in you, you believed in them, and people wanna work for leaders that trust them and that they can trust, but that's only day one. And then the real work begins. And what happens, trust gets shaken. It gets shaken because of something we're gonna talk about, but trust gets shaken and it needs to be earned again and again. And in technology, we worship at this altar of speed and moving fast and breaking things. And for crying out loud, people refer to us as mythical creatures and unicorns. And the deities and the myths and, the, and all of this storytelling is actually the very thing that can erode trust. Because if you don't tend to this carefully with attention and deliberately, it goes away and we just saw what happens. And importantly, this work is not fast. It can go faster sometimes, but it's actually slow, and it may slow you down on a nominal level against whatever scorecard you're tracking, but it is the biggest lever to high performance. So if we go, if we think about now, what are the elements of trust? Hopefully all of this can somehow feel intuitive, especially as you're thinking of your own example. Well, there's three key parts that need to line up in every interaction across your organization to create this foundational level. One is logic. So your team needs to believe that there is a plan, a debated, rigorous, good plan that they can follow to create the impact they have. There's, there's no coaching on necessarily if the logic is off, but we'll presume you have a good plan. In addition to being good, it has to be well communicated to everybody in the organization. We'll come back to that. The second is empathy. People need to feel like you are in it for them, not for yourself. And finally is authenticity. The real you needs to show up, needs to show up always, not just in what you say, but what you do, the latter being far more important. And when that wobbles, and Francis Fry, who had led strategy and leadership at an interesting time in Uber's history, after Travis, the founder, got ousted, and before Dara, the new CEO, came into play, 
she did this TED talk on trust, which I encourage everybody to see, based on her observations of what she saw at Uber at the time. And she described wobbles, wobbles against all of these things. And these wobbles are gaps between how one party projects and believes they're perceived and how another party is actually perceiving. So those wobbles across three dimensions, let's talk about each one. So logic, all of these are examples that I have lived or am living right now. So this is not meant to be preachy or pedantic. And we'll get to the playbook element after we establish a couple of these foundations. So logic. So we debate rigorously plans for a three-year strike at Gusto. We do a three-year, who are we selling to? What are we selling? How are we going to get find them? And, and how will we know if we win? So you come out with this plan at the end, and let's say you're feeling really good about it. That's great strategy. You're feeling good. But then you come to find that the service organization, the people that are on the phone with your customers every day, don't find the plan inspirational and are not connecting to it at all. That is a huge logic wobble that needs to be corrected. On empathy, so let's say you are going to correct this. You're a person who says you welcome challenges and feedback from all sides. So you create a team meeting with everybody that has been there for a long time in the service organization. And you come and you sit down and you say, give me feedback on the plan and people start to engage. They start to really engage and tell you why the plan sucks, and you're saying, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, tell me more. But you're kind of on your phone, or maybe you open your computer to take a slack. You check the box, you showed up, you pretended you had empathy, but that's not what people are thinking. They're thinking, what you really wanted me to do was get on board. So that is an empathy wobble. And then the last one is authenticity. And this one, I think, gets misperceived. I'm going to give an example that hopefully resonates. You are a leader, and you say you're passionate about diversity, putting it in quotes purposefully. You're passionate about diversity. And you hire an all-white male leadership team. And when you're interacting with the organization, talking about your passion and talking about it a lot outside the organization, the thought bubble that someone may not tell you who's a person of color or women from any backgrounds is it's not only not credible, it's actually really obnoxious to say that you have passion for diversity when the most visible and important move you could make as to how you surround yourself and whose voices are helping you are not diverse at all. And this isn't just a theoretical potential wobble. There is a ton of research, and from experience, maybe you all relate to this, that when you surround yourself with sameness, it's pernicious because you're not getting new and novel ideas. People often, with rare exception, will default to what is the best way to fit in with the majority and the way they speak and the way they talk, which is a common information effect. And common information does not allow you to seek out the next innovative product or service idea. And it's incredible the time that we're living in. I think over 25 years of working and leading teams and being on some that are high performing and some that outright failed. If we look globally outside all of our organizations, the stakes have never been higher. This is from a trust study by Edelman Trust Barometer done globally. In this year alone, there has been a precipitous decline 
in people's trust for their governments, for the private sector at large, for NGO, and for media. But the one raise that we saw was people's trust in their employer, in all of you, in all of us, to help navigate an anxious and ambiguous world and do the right thing. So this, I think, is an incredible insight. It's an incredible insight, and it's an incredible responsibility. So sort of finishing the background on if trust is the most important element and if it's changing, our organization and our teams are changing all the time, how do you actually architect for this? Well, you set the expectation and you create the conditions for everyone in the organization to exhibit a driver mindset, to communicate for impact, and to make and live by impeccable commitments. We'll talk about each. So driver mentality, and we'll use some examples that bring this to life. Again, all real examples. Let's say there's a risk that you've just had a database breach. You don't know actually if you did, you just might have. You don't know specifically what the root cause was, and you certainly don't know how to respond. And so you've got to bring it together a tight team to help investigate and figure out what to do. And immediately becomes apparent that you have passengers and you have drivers. Passengers prototypically take the posture that life happens to me and other people are to blame. And there's three classic moves. First is to blame. Oh my god, I can't believe that team effed it up again. And then to dwell. They always do that. That team is always screwing it up. And that another telltale sign, big hyperbolic statements, other people always stink, it's never them. And then wait. You know what, I've got a class tonight, I work all the time, I'm gonna let these guys figure it out, they made their mess, they'll call me, I probably have to fix it. In the other side, you recognize drivers, people who prototypically say, I'm not in control of everything that happens, but I'm 100% in control of how I respond. And I always respond with respect and with curiosity. The driver sort of reflects, how did this happen? What was my part in it? And then they look for a way forward. What, how could we potentially, how do we use the collective wisdom of everybody in the room to get better at this? And then they learn. You know what, that's so, I learned so much, I'm gonna create a macro, I'll send it to the organization, so next time this happens, we all know how to respond. And interestingly, you kind of, I see a lot of head nods of, you can think of passengers and drivers, but we're all both. We all at any one time are both, and in organization building, and imagine at the pace you're going that we're going, it is really a marathon. It's a long, long way to creating sustained and durable performance. And so, the trick is not to try to always, or not to, it's not even possible to always be in the driver's seat, but you can equip people to recognize when they're being pulled into a passenger mindset and then get them back to a driver mindset. And what is that tool? The tool will be recognizable to some of you. It is truly a mindfulness practice. So you're in a situation, it's heated, You'll recognize in yourself you're about to respond to a way that if your mom was in the room, she wouldn't be proud. It's always good to have the mom or the dad or somebody that, you, that loves you always on your shoulder. You've got to, in those moments, stop. And I'm not saying just you. You equip the organization to have the same practice. Stop. Label the feeling. 
In the case of the database breach, am I embarrassed because I might have played a role in it? And am I frustrated because this is kind of endemic of poor performance? Am I scared? What is the feeling? And then take a minute to say, what was the trigger? Let's say I now reflect and I think, oh my gosh, the security engineer tried to tell me that we were at risk and that he needed resources to fix this, and I kind of blew him off because something else was more important. So in that moment, you observe what your part was in that, and then you think, what could I do in response? So I could say, because I've now noticed I'm kind of ashamed and I'm also really tired, that was the trigger, you can share that with the folks in the room and say, look, I own a lot of this and I'm super tired, I don't think I'm gonna contribute tonight. Or you could stay or you could go. But the point is to then proceed and act consciously. As we're acting, Growing organizations are all about communication. Communicating in one-on-one, -on -one, communicating broadcast. And there's a good framing from Kim Scott who wrote a book called Radical Candor and had worked at Google. And she frames feedback along two dimensions. How do you challenge directly, x-axis, and challenge directly can also be interchanged with communicate crisply. And y-axis is while expressing deep care. And if we take an example we can all relate to, your fly is down, and we look at the three ways to not give feedback, I'll sort of place some of these in your head. One is the person who challenges directly but is super uncaring, and that guy is like calling up from you while you're on the stage, like, hey, dude, your fly is down, obnoxious aggressor. Then you have somebody who does not care deeply, nor does she or he challenge directly. This is called manipulative insincerity. This person wants to be liked, has a fear of fitting in. They're definitely not telling you your fly is down. They might, and quite often, will tell lots of other people that your fly was down. And then you have the ruinous empath. And this one is super tricky and a trap that I see lots of startups falling into. This is the person that cares a lot, but is not super psyched about constructive conflict. Why does this happen a lot in startups? Because we often are working side by side, and then somebody becomes the boss of somebody else. So you were peers five seconds ago, and now someone has more positional authority. Or you're a founder, and you've got to hire your first CMO or CFO or see anything, and you bring in somebody with a lot of experience playing that position, and you have a sense in both cases that maybe your former peer or this new C-level position is not performing, but you kind of think, well, they're trying hard, and I know they know more than me, and I'm just going to be silent. All three of these are so deleterious to the foundation of trust because if we're growing so quickly, if we're changing, my job as title of COO at Gusto has in title only remained the same. Every six months, it's an entirely different job. The expectations are higher because we have more customers, the complexity gets bigger, our product set has expanded. So if people are not regularly giving feedback, positive and negative, then I'm not getting better. The organization that I'm empowering is not getting better. So this is really, really important. And so the way that we aspire, the quadrant we all want to be in, 
and by the way, this works in marriage too, is how do you care deeply, but really be crisp and challenge directly? And in this case, using the analogy, this is the person that would just quietly whisper, hey, your fly is down, at a moment you could address it. So hopefully just seeing this, you can recognize when you yourself have delivered feedback in one of these quadrants, or when you've been on the receiving end. In either case, again, it's easy to label, but how do you practically go back to your organizations and make it a reality? Equipping people with a common way to give feedback and making it part of your organization is a good way to do it. This is one that works for us. Some have probably heard of it. Situation, uh, behavior, impact, and future. What do you want to see in the future? And I'll give you two examples to illustrate this. Again, both real. So you're in a meeting with a colleague, and they interrupt you, and you feel slighted by that. One way to give feedback is dwell on it for a while, and then finally, when you get the courage to say something, say, at one of our meetings a month or so ago, you interrupted me and others, and I got to tell you, you do this a lot, and it's why people are leaving. Super scary to be on the receiving end of that feedback because which meeting? Oh my God, I did? I'm so sorry. And I do it to others and that's why people are leaving? Suddenly, I don't have trust that I, I've kind of lost trust in myself, let alone the person giving me the feedback. And now let's look at the same example that actually does it really well. So in our executive leadership meeting, Two days ago, recency matters, specificity matters. When I was giving summary thoughts at the end of the discussion, you cut me off using a hand gesture like this. That, that's really specific. I can, I can bring that person back to the memory of that specific hand gesture. The impact was I felt disrespected, but more importantly, you set an example for everybody looking at us that it's okay to interrupt people in that way. And so in the future, can you let me finish my thoughts and then tell me afterwards if the content was off or I was going on too long, because I value your feedback. This is, you feel like somebody is in it for you, because they're not denying that they may have had a good point, like maybe I was going on really long, but they're just saying that's not the way that I want to receive it. And they're lodging it in with such care in saying it this way, Again, we're building trust. We've just built empathy and built that foundation further. I love this topic. It's probably, I'm probably jumping out my seat a little bit. I do think we could have had a talk on how to create great strategy or any element of the five elements of trust, but ultimately, given the backdrop we're living in, how important it is for us to create organizations that people can rely on to feel safe, welcome, and valued. I think that creates not only great performance for all of us, but does a great service to the rest of the world. So thank you so much for coming. Great to be here. TaxJar automates sales tax for growing and mid-market SaaS businesses, so you can focus on expanding your services into new markets and grow your top-line revenue. Don't let sales tax be a pain in the SaaS. Visit TaxJar.com forward slash SASTER to automate your sales tax compliance and protect your business from the burden of sales tax.